Welcome to the Thought Leader series brought to you by Rare Cancers Australia. In season one of this series, we're piloting candid conversations with some of the brightest minds in the Australian cancer community. People with a strong vision for what things could and should look like now and into the future. In this series, you can expect real questions with real answers and fresh perspectives on what needs to change and be done to make things better for patients. So we've just got to get away from this whole system, this system that relies on numbers and economics and getting back to focusing on how do we just get that particular drug which offers a meaningful benefit for patients, how do we get that to patients? In this episode, RCA Chief Executive Richard Vine speaks with Carlo Montagna, Chief Executive Officer of Specialised Therapeutics Australia. STA is a pharmaceutical company that has been instrumental in helping Australians living with rare cancer to access new medicines that would otherwise be out of reach. Prior to founding STA, Carlo had senior roles at some of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. So. Welcome, Carlo, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity, Richard. Yeah, always good chatting with you. It, it's yeah. good fun. Um, you initially studied psychology. You mm. did a master's in clinical psychology yeah. Yeah. and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, to support mm. that, including um, uh, nursing and mm. in disabled, mm. disabled environments, a whole mm. lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, how did you get from that kind of medical environment into the pharma industry in the first place? Mm. Well, in my third year at La Trobe Uni when I was doing a Bachelor of Behavioural Science, I did my, my um, major was in psychopharmacology. So that was my first introduction to science, but uh, I was more interested in cognitive behavioural psychology and, and wanted to be a psychologist in that area. So then I did a, um, a grad dip in child psych or child and adolescent psychology then followed by the masters, and the masters focused on cognitive behavioural environments of you know, deinstitutionalised people as they moved from uh, institutions for their intellectual disability, you know, mainly suffering from Down syndrome, out into the community, which was uh, a big push in the 1980s. Mm. So from there, I started practising. And then I asked myself the question, you know, do I see myself doing this for the next 40 or 50 years? And at that stage, it wasn't that stimulating. And ironically, what was more stimulating was that I was also working part-time in a deli, in a delicatessen, in a chain uh, called Cut Price Deli. And it was a big chain in New South Wales and Victoria. And I was quickly made, you know, operations manager and working several stores. And, you know, it wasn't intellectually challenging, but it was very stimulating working in that dynamic business environment. So, you know, there I was thinking, well, how do I, you know, get the same thrill that I get working in a business environment, but still challenge myself intellectually? And that was uh, the solution came from my wife, so Bajana, who then was very interested in going into the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. So she had had this science background and knew some people that were working in that industry and it was a very you know, um, a positive feedback that she was receiving. So then she started applying and then I thought, hang on, this sounds like a great career. So mm. you can have the intellectual challenge, do something that's, I think, worthy and uh, but still be in a business environment and so uh, and, and really the first stepping stone for pharmaceuticals is joining as a medical representative 
So then I started interviewing as well, and much to her annoyance, um, I got the job first. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. <laughs> Not always. So I did get the job first in, in pharma. And you said to me previously that, that when you started working in industry, you didn't, you didn't necessarily try to climb the corporate ladder really quickly. You went sideways around the industry. To, in order to, to better understand it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I th and in fact, that's the advice I give to a lot of people today. So if you choose to uh, be in a particular industry, then very important to build that foundation, a little bit like becoming a great chef. You don't become a great chef by starting cooking, you're actually in the kitchen cleaning and learning all the facets mm. of, of uh, being a, a chef and working in a kitchen. So I turned down multiple opportunities for promotions and I still remember the managing director coming down um, to my office and saying, Carla, we've got a great opportunity for you to step up into this role. And I'd say no. And I'd say, no, I really want to do something in primary care or in OTC. Mm. Uh, and no one could fathom why I would say no, because it was a no to a promotion in terms of you know, salary as well as a step up. And so. Um, so ultimately, I think that helped me in good stead because then I did work in OTC, working with pharmacists selling over-the-counter products, uh, GP products, primary care, selling on steroidals and those types of products. And then ultimately, I went into the hospital space and that was my first introduction to oncology uh, for Rainfield and Right. And, and at some point, you left Melbourne and you went to, went to Europe? Um, yeah. Or the US, was it? Um, yeah, so I moved to Sydney and, and then I became uh, responsible for the oncology portfolio and, and cardiovascular portfolio. And then from there, I met one of my mentors, uh, Pasco Sorio, who's the um, CEO of AstraZeneca, I think yeah. well known now uh, given you know, the COVID um, AstraZeneca vaccines you know, and the emergence there. So Pascal was. Um, uh, my boss uh, a few years later and uh, and then he moved to the US and I followed him to the US and to New Jersey which was a very interesting experience yeah yeah I'm sure so, it must mm. have been one of the things that stuns me about mm. when I meet people in the pharmaceutical industry is that they they tend to be in it and stay in it mm. but you leapt out of it at some mm. point to mm. Uh, a company called Abraxas, which mm. was a, a biotech company with, yeah. with, with an, and a one drug company, and yes. went in there as mm. president? Yeah, so um, the pharmaceutical industry is a fantastic industry, it's a wonderful industry. So what's special about this industry is that we have so many people from different walks of life, researchers, you know, pure researchers to developers to business people, to legal finance, you name it. And they all come together and there is this real intent to you know, add something new for the world, right? Mm -hmm. to, to bring something new, to, to make a difference. I mean, there really is that intent. A lot of people don't see that behind the numbers and the, the spreadsheets and the balance sheets and share prices of these multinationals. But 99% of people that I worked with um, have that real ambition to do something good and still earn a good living at the same time and enjoy the camaraderie of others around them. But there's nothing better than working in this industry. And so, yes, I worked across in a number of different countries, Japan, the US and West Coast, East Coast and Germany and so forth. And then you did something that I found. I, I lived overseas mm. for six years in the 90s mm. and I found it very easy to go. Mm. But I found the decision to come home to be really, really troubling because yes. it's like, 
when you're home, you're home. Mm. And, and Australia's a wonderful place to live, but the world's big. Yes. And I'm interested in, yeah. not only did you do that, mm. but you did that mm. and decided mm. to set up an entity, mm. your specialised therapeutics at the same time, which is, yeah. which is more than enough, I would have thought, more than a handful, I would have thought. Yeah, but we had to, we had no choice. So mm. I did a scouting trip, and you read this a lot about expats when they come back. Mm. I, we, I did a scouting trip, asked around, anyone interested in hiring me, zero interest. Yeah. So uh, overpaid for, for what I was doing in the US at the time, but in a, by Australian standards, overpaid. Um, there was a, quite a lot of parochialism here as well. And at one stage we thought, well, I don't think we can come back. And, and the reason for coming back was family. And there were drugs here, well, there were drugs available that I was aware of in the US and Europe that simply weren't here in Australia. Mm. And so the question was, well, why is, why is that? And that's because those companies did not have a presence here and were more focused on the big markets, you know, the US and Japan and the key five countries of Europe. And Australia being a very small market was of less interest to them. And so we thought, well, here's an opportunity. So uh, I, obviously we couldn't set up the company without a product. Mm. So I in-licensed from an old colleague of mine some Italian generic antibiotics. And so flucloxacillin, amoxicillin, et cetera. Yeah. I received the rights to Abraxane. So then I had um, two, product, um, two products. So well, actually at that stage it was four. Mm. So we had three antibiotics and Abraxane. And, but in order to commercialise those drugs, um, you know, Bajen and I pretty much had to sell everything. So all our investments that we'd acquired over the years, rental properties, you know, the mm. typical yep. negative gearing portfolio that yep. people have in their 40s. And, uh, and that's when we had that heart-stopping moment, uh, Richard, when uh, I was in Los Angeles at the time and our first submission to the to PBAC was rejected. And I remember having that conversation with Bajen. I called and I said, well, I just got a phone call. In those days, you got mm -hmm. a phone call. And, um, and I said, well, it's just been rejected. And, and Bajen was like, we're ruined. And mm. anyway, so it was a very, uh, for the next three days, three or four days, uh, it was not good for us. Uh, so we really did think that we'd have to move back to the US, get another job and fold up the company. And yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of businesses go through those moments, yeah. Uh, that, that whole area mm. of, of the risk mm. of yeah. bringing mm. um, products into the country, and, you know, mm. and I'm, I'm guessing a bit here, but it seems yeah. like the sequence is you, you would have to identify the product, mm. negotiate the rights, um, and, and sometimes that would that would require funds to, to, yes. to secure the rights. Mm. Then you've got the, the, the cost of applying mm. for the TGA and the PBAC. Yes. Mm. Um, and at this point, it's mm. all outflow yeah. um, and no guarantee of return. Yeah, that's, it's that's a similar analogy to, I think, mining. So there's a lot mm. of upfront costs when you're developing a mine, you have the prospecting stage. Mm. And then if you hit something, then you need to actually have equipment there to, to bring it out of the dirt. And then if that looks positive, and, and I think it's, it's very similar to our business. So if we just look at the numbers, we don't actually, even if a drug is successfully identified, TGA, PBAC listed, we don't see any profit from that for at least five years. I mean, that's, that's the extent of the upfront cost that's needed to um, to just get the drug to the stage where it's even on the PBS, let alone if it doesn't make it on the PBS, 
then um, it's a disaster financially. And we have one product, I won't say which product, that we applied twice to the PBS and we're sitting on about $6 million worth of losses for that product. Now it's still available, we make it as affordable as possible. Mm. Um, you can't write it off, there is no write-off, it's money spent. Yeah. Um, it's money out of you know, our, our family pocket. It's not, there's no head office, there's no parent conglomerate that we can go to that can bail us out. This comes directly out of our cash flow. So it really sharpens your focus when looking at other new mm -hmm. products, because if we make too many mistakes like that, we're out of business yeah. and, and we're not employing 50 plus people. Yeah. And it, mm. it seems that it wouldn't be, it's not hard to imagine an environment where we're having identified and if you like secured a, a, an interim period, mm. you could then get a conversation with the PBAC or mm. elements of the government, mm. Department of Health, whatever, and say, I've got this and I've got it on hold. I've got an exclusive on it for three months. Mm. Um, here's the data, mm. here's the cost. You know, why can't we do that as a conversation? Mm. I, um, well, because the end result yeah. must be that, mm. as you said, drugs that are marginal, that are mm. high risk, don't come to Australia. And yeah. that's not good for patients. That's not good for patients. And I contrast the current situation, which doesn't enable that type of process to happen where you can just have a conversation and work out what are the roadblocks. Mm. Is, it, is it just price? Is it, is it really the clinical data or the toxicity or what have you that's identified in the minutes that come out of these meetings? Because sometimes it's difficult to really understand what is the real issue. Mm. You always suspect that there's something else. I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but but it's sometimes very difficult, even though the department and the government will say, well, we've written a 20-page document of minutes documenting why we haven't recommended it. But that sometimes isn't enough. Many times it's not enough because there's a disconnect in terms of interpreting the data and the value. And there's a disconnect between um, prescribers and patients who think the data is clinically meaningful and it's needed to, for, for their patients, and yet the government doesn't see it that way. But I contrast that current situation with what I was um, uh, discussing earlier with the Braxane, when the Braxane was first rejected. So when the Braxane was first rejected for metastatic breast cancer, uh, we thought we were done and it, was, it mm. was devastating. But then three days later, I received a call from the department and, uh, and there was d different leadership at the time and a, and a different mentality. And the call was uplifting because it was about, okay, so we've rejected you, but we know oncologists would like a Braxone available for their patients, for their breast cancer patients. So let's work it out. And we actually, were, in fact, mm -hmm. our consultant at the time, our, our reimbursement consultant, was on some ship in the Antarctic, and I had to try and get hold of her. And, but we worked it out, I won't go into the details, no. but with the department, we made it happen and it went back again, and then it was recommended by us making those adjustments. Mm. And so that was a really positive interaction, and it was very patient-focused because it also was stimulated by the department understanding that there was a clinical need for this product to be available, but we were not quite there yet. And so we worked together and made it happen. Uh, that happened also for a couple of other products that we've had a few years after, anti-emetic supportive care products for oncology. Mm. There were issues, roadblocks, but then we had a discussion 
a conversation and we worked it out over in fact one that was over a cup of coffee mm. in a cafe uh, with the chair of the PBAC at the time so um, that's what I miss from the current system it's become very layered very remote um, you can't pick up the phone anymore and speak to someone in the department mm. even over a simple question it's got to be by email and you'll get a response you know days or weeks later but it's a very formal official response following the guidelines We've lost that ability to have that real conversation that focuses on the core issues of for what's preventing that drug being made available to Aussies. Simple as that. It's I miss that. Yeah, it seems it seems mm. an unnecessary mm. burden because the object of the game must be to get the treatment mm. to the patient. This and and how can having a conversation about that be difficult? Yeah. Um, Who's compromised by that conversation? Mm. There is no compromise. Uh, it's why, Richard, I, I really wish medical oncologists, say in the oncology sphere, it would be medical oncologists and haematologists. Mm. I wish they would get more involved. But they're constrained by this thought or belief and sometimes accusation by others mm. that if they get too involved and too supportive behind a particular drug being reimbursed, that there's a conflict of interest. I mean, there is no conflict of interest. In fact, the interest is aligned with their patient's needs. Yeah. And so I get very frustrated when a lot of oncologists and haematologists that I speak to, and there are, there is a small group that are very vocal, very active in, in trying to get particular drugs on the PBS mm. and they write in this, but there's a lot of, um, I think the word is apathy actually. Yeah. And maybe not just apathy, but it's uh, helplessness. Mm. It's like the system, it's just too big, I don't understand it. Uh, if they've rejected it, it's probably a good reason why it's rejected. The company's asked for too much money or whatever it is, right? But it's in the prescribers, the physician's best interest to have that available to them so that they can treat their patients. And I keep hearing about conflict of interest. I don't see any conflict unless they own 60 or 70% of the shares of that company, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I've always had the view that, and Rare Cancers Australia has always taken the view that, that we have a common interest, we have a common interest with you, Absolutely. Um, and in that we both want to get that drug into the patient when they yeah. need it as fast as possible, and that's, that's no conflict there. Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. And so it's beholden on the companies as well, and I think the pharmaceutical companies have made a rod for themselves over the last 20, 30 years by, you know, initially requesting ridiculous pricing and I've seen it you know right. and I was part of the big pharma system mm. and I know why that occurred you know we have amazing well not amazing but we have very high pricing that's achieved in the US and then that filters down and that sort of sets the benchmark but the reality is now Richard we've been selling high cost you know high value oncology drugs targeted drugs now for quite a few years and so there is um, there are pricing benchmarks in Europe, in Australia, in the US where things have settled. So we know that for a drug that offers, let's say, 12 months of incremental survival versus the comparator, I think we all know roughly what that's worth. We don't need to spend, you know, which, which is what I'm spending, $300,000 on an economic model to show that that drug is cost effective. I mean, it's self-explanatory, right? It's 12 yeah. month survival improvement for someone who has no other options. And, and there are other drugs like that that do similar. So, so 
we've just got to get away from this whole system, this system that relies on numbers and economics to make decisions and, and policies and ticking the right boxes and getting back to focusing on how do we just get that particular drug which offers a meaningful benefit for patients, how do we get that to patients as quickly as possible? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to talk about the process yeah. with, with of how we get a drug mm. on the PBS, we have to talk about that mm. mythical beast called health technology assessment. Yeah. I wonder what what your view of, uh, is there another model that we could mm. use? That's really the, the question. Yeah, well, well I think that model there is a place for that model, and I think that place is for primary care drugs where the, the actual cost, the fully burdened cost to the society is very high. So it could be 100 or $300 million a year spend or, or even more. But in the field that we operate in, uh, which are really uh, drugs that treat targeted cancers, uh, so in, in that particular field, there is no value to health technology assessment because we're treating 50 to 100, maybe a few hundred patients. Mm. And the clinical evidence and the clinical benefit to patients should outweigh everything else. So as I said earlier, we already have price benchmarks. We already know that for a PD-1 or immuno-oncology drug that offers X months of benefit, the cost is around the three to $5,000 mark. So if you have another drug that comes on, you could quickly make a decision, say, well, this drug offers five, six, or 12 months of survival benefit or other benefits, uh, um, clinical mm. benefits. And so the pricing should be in that ballpark. So let's sit around the table and once it's TGA approved, let's just get it to patients as soon as possible. But so there is a place for HTA, but HTA is now, I think, too big. I think the industry is too valuable. There are a lot of people making a lot of money from health technology assessment. You have universities who receive contracts from the government to do their, their reviews. You have a lot of private operators. Uh, like I said, I'm spending two, $300,000 per submission. So now I'm not, I'm not making the claim that that money is not well spent in terms of the people that we're employing to put these dossiers together, but why do we need to put those dossiers together in the first place? I mean, we've got a clinical dossier that goes to the TGA that looks very closely at all the efficacy and the safety aspects of that particular drug. So ultimately we're rehashing a lot of the same work that we've done in terms of getting a TGA registration. Mm. And then we end up also having to do these complex economic models to treat 50 patients a year or 100 patients a year. Mm. It's just, and I'm, we're spending two, $300,000 to answer a question. I won't get that 200 or $300,000 back for probably three years even if it's on the PBS, and then we come to that dilemma, then I have to make a decision. Well, do we actually bring that product to Australia? Because I know I have to spend that type of money just, to ev just for the product to be considered by the PBAC with no guarantee that it will be listed. So if I do that too many times with the drug not being listed, we're out of business. And so the barriers are very, very high uh, for Bringing the, considering to bring these products to Australia when we have the system that we have at the moment. Mm. Uh, unlike in Singapore. So in Singapore, I have a meeting in two weeks' time. We're meeting with the Singaporean authorities right. and for the same drugs that we've submitted here in Australia. And there the system is much more straightforward. There is a clinical discussion um, that the Singapore authority will seek, uh, int uh, seek feedback from key opinion leaders or key... Uh, therapeutic leaders in Singapore on the value of that particular drug. 
And then we have a very honest and transparent discussion around price. And then a decision is made shortly afterwards. That system seems to work much better. In fact, there are more drugs available in Singapore than there are in Australia in most instances because of that process. Yeah. Mm. And it's interesting mm. that you've, you've been successful with yeah. specialised therapeutics here and, yeah. um, and that's mm. nice, but you've also decided to branch out into Asia mm. and it's not just mm. Singapore, is it? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it and yeah. it's, it's a big, wide, wonderful world up yeah. there. Yeah. There's so much to do. Are you yeah. enjoying it? Are you optimistic about that? Yeah, no, and we are and, and we all love diversity and, uh, and we all enjoy challenges and I've always enjoyed the challenge. But one of the reasons we went into this in Southeast Asia was the fact that a lot of our products weren't available. A lot of these therapies for rare cancers are not available to patients mm. in that region. Uh, and, the, and there's a business reason as well. It was a de-risking uh, decision as well, that we see the landscape for reimbursement in Australia becoming more and more constrained, more and more restrictive to the point where it will be very, very difficult to have new therapies reimbursed here. I, I mean, and the risk, the risk is very high uh, to, to determine the probability of success, whether a drug would be listed or not. Whereas in Asia, it's very different. There's private insurance in Asia. Mm -hmm. So patients can have private insurance and have access to medicine uh, in Malaysia, in Singapore, in Thailand. Uh, in the US, for example, you know, there's 92% uh, of people have access to medicines. Uh, whereas in Australia, it's binary. It's zero or 100% access. Yeah. There is no... So the move to Singapore, to Malaysia and Thailand for us was, uh, was inevitable because we couldn't just rely on commercialising products here in Australia. Otherwise, the risk was just too great for us to survive into the future. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, we have to be... We have to find a solution because otherwise yeah. those... I mean... If we don't have an organisation like yours or more than one of them, uh, and right now we seem to have only one, then we have no vehicle for bringing drugs in from small innovative companies in Europe and America who do not want to establish an office here. And I think we need to be, we need to be mindful that, that they're not going to supply and go through the process here by, by, by postal application from New Jersey or wherever. Oh, no. And in fact, uh, they're worried about coming to Australia. They're always worried about the price. Mm. And so, in fact, in all the agreements we're signing now with new companies, they all want a veto on our um, pricing. So they won't let us just go to PBAC and get a recommendation and maybe it's at a price that will compromise their pricing in Europe and the US. So consequently, they're all writing in vetoes in our agreements mm. so that um, they can walk away. So there's another risk for our business and that is, I could overcome the challenges of PBAC and yet still have the challenge, and in fact, I've had that experience already, the challenge of the company saying, well, congratulations, you've managed to get a positive PBAC recommendation, but the price they've offered is so low, it would compromise our business elsewhere. So in fact, we have two examples, Richard. So we have an eye drug, um, Alluvian, that treats uh, diabetic macular edema, and it's uh, approved and used widely in the US and, and Europe. And we have Yondelis, a rare can a, a drug to treat rare sarcomas. Mm. And in both instances, we received positive recommendations. And yet our partners said, sorry, you cannot launch at that pricing that would compromise our pricing severely in Europe and the rest of the world. So we've left with um, 
just uh, the cost of going through that whole process mm. uh, that we have to just write off and making the drugs available through some type of affordable access programs. Uh, but they're real risks, so there's a number of risks there. Hence why companies overseas, when they look at Australia, they all they are concerned and, and all they know of Australia is that it's a very, very difficult place to get a reimbursement in the first place and then a decent price as yeah. well. So. so Carla, we've talked a lot about mm. rare cancers and I mean, mm. we are, this is such an easy interview for me mm. because specialised therapeutics is, is specialising in mm. rare cancers. Mm. So how do, you, how do you understand and how do your staff drive themselves to get rare cancer patients what they deserve mm. in this country and, and what's, what's there and what's mm. missing and how can we make it better? Mm. So it's a very important question to ask given and, and a consideration for us as a company. So quite often we receive a lot of letters from patients asking for help or they've heard about a particular drug that we have that could make a difference and how they can access. So we try and maintain that connection with patients by sharing that internally. Uh, but my myself, I mean, I've been through that rare cancer story. So, you know, seven years ago, my father was diagnosed with mesothelioma, which is considered a rare cancer. And then at that stage, and in fact, even today, there are no real treatments that have made a difference for mesothelioma patients. And so here's my father who's worked hard all his life. You know, he was a builder's labourer, sugarcane cutter, immigrant from Italy, um, through no fault of his own, never smoked, um, you know, lived a good life, is diagnosed with this rare cancer and probably um, most likely inherited from you know, construction sites, mm. you know, uh, from asbestos, being exposed to asbestos. So I vividly remember, like it was yesterday, sitting across from my father, like I'm sitting across from you now, telling him, there are no other options. There's no, there are no other therapies. And so that's a, a key driver for me and my family in terms of why we should bring these drugs, which really aren't that profitable. So all these rare cancer drugs that we're bringing to Australia, uh, with all the risks that we talked about earlier, ultimately, um, even if we had 10 of them, it's not really enough to, uh, to sufficiently run the company. So, but we do it because we're driven to make these drugs available for, for you know, all the mums and dads and the brothers and sisters who have relatives that are you know, faced by this dilemma of what's the solution to this issue that we, that's not their, their fault. It's not, not through any fault of their own that they've been, they're in this situation where they have this disease with no solution. Yeah, um, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and we've... Mm. For what it's worth, we're releasing a report which is called Counting the Cost, mm. which is addressing exactly that mm. ripple effect that cancer causes mm. when, when the mm. treatments that should be there that aren't there. Yeah. So It touches so many people, and so I think that's why it's important, the work that you're doing, rare cancers, mm. it, that's, you're the only facilitator that brings all of us together to elevate this to a level where people are really thinking about this, because otherwise, People only think about these situations when it impacts them. And so um, otherwise, that's the only um, avenue that we have to get people together. Yeah, so, yeah. I still vividly remember yeah. one of the mothers of a young boy that, who said, summed it up perfectly. And he said the first time, she said the first time I knew there was a problem with the PBS yeah. was when I had 24 hours to raise $100,000 to save my son's life. Absolutely. And it, it, it is, it's yeah. there. It's, 
it's um, so, it's yeah. real people, real problems in yeah. real time. And we have to find a way to touch people with that sentiment even when they're not faced with that dilemma themselves at the time so that it's in people's consciousness all the time. And yeah. so, and that's, uh, and I think um, even one small element of that is private insurance. So why can't we as Australians have private insurance which enables us to access these drugs mm. if they're not on the PBS? Yeah. And, so, and that's a consideration when people are signing up for private insurance, they should have the opportunity to tick that box because just the action of ticking that box will actually make them aware that perhaps there are drugs that are not on the PBS that they will need one day. And so that's part of that process as well. Yeah, yeah. it is. So uh, and my last question yeah. is, we, we, which I'm asking everybody, is we, when we wrote Vision 2030, which mm. is the thing that yes. catalyzed the creation of the Australian Cancer yeah. Plan, one of the goals of it was to try and get 90% five-year survival for yeah. all cancer patients. Mm. So my question from, from you as someone who's a part of the solution yes. is, are we overly optimistic yeah. in, in aiming to do that? Could we do it? Do yeah. we see, what do you see when you're looking and assessing these products to come to Australia, the yeah. leaps in technology? Just yeah. to so I think it's definitely possible from a science point of view, mm. and, and that's what I was saying earlier, that the science that's happening now and the incentive for companies, biotechs, university laboratories, to shift the needle for all the various cancers is there and it's all happening. So I think the goal is achievable from a clinical point of view, scientific point of view, but those products coming to Australia and being available to patients here, I think that's the biggest challenge now. So, and, and that's my fear. My fear is not, is the science and the motivation there for scientists to deliver on that type of vision it's more, can we afford it? And is the Australian government willing to pay for that type of innovation? Because it doesn't come cheap, just like the latest technology for cars. You pay, someone has to pay for that technology and it shouldn't be, the, it shouldn't be us Australians relying on the Americans who pay the higher pricing for these drugs to rely on them to pay for it and then we ride on their coattails. And that's essentially what's happening at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll keep working on it. <laughs> and um, yeah. so, thank you. It's been yeah. wonderful. It's been oh, great. Yeah. Thanks, oh, Colin. Thanks, Richard. It was uh, nice chatting. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the RCA Thought Leader Series. To receive each new episode in your inbox, you can subscribe to the series at rarecancers.org.au forward slash Thought Leader Series. We look forward to sharing the next candid conversation on cancer soon.